Welcome to Bird's Eye View, the podcast that celebrates and discusses books, stories, writing and writers. I'm your host, Math Bird, writer and Welsh Borderlands dweller. In each episode, I'll explore some of my books and stories, the books and stories I love to read, and the writers who write them, sharing my take on their themes, narratives, beginnings, endings, and everything else in between. Hello, this episode is all about Welsh crime fiction. There are, of course, many crime novels set in and around Wales, and in forthcoming episodes, I'll be discussing a selection of them, giving my take on their narratives, settings, characters and themes. However, today, I'll be looking at where crime and literary fiction converge, and where this coming together of genres has been used to explore the South, West and northeast regions of Wales. By discussing four selected Welsh crime novels, I'll examine each novel's approach to the Welsh region it represents. Through Raymond Williams's hard-boiled political thriller The Volunteers and Duncan Bush's noir thriller Glass Shot, I'll discuss how Welsh crime fiction can be used to explore periphery centre conflicts, globalisation, cultural assimilation, and the disconnected centre. Through Niall Griffiths' novel Stump, I'll discuss how Welsh crime fiction can explore how geographical, cultural and social landscapes shape and to some degree limit our behaviour. And finally, I'll talk about my own literary crime novel, Border Sands, and how it's used to explore geographical, social and moral borders. I hope you enjoy this episode. And if you feel so inclined, please rate and review. So, let's begin with Raymond Williams' hard-boiled political thriller, The Volunteers. The Volunteers depicts an imagined 1980s set against the backdrop of the striking coalfields of South Wales. The story is narrated from the viewpoint of its main protagonist, Lewis Redfern, a cynical, investigative reporter of Welsh extraction. Redfern, a former left-wing political activist, now works for the Incitel Global News Corporation as a consultant analyst, reporting on the political underground, using his knowledge of subversive political groups to point his colleagues towards the juiciest, most lucrative stories. Redfern has parallels with Dashiell Hammett's Sam Spade and Raymond Chandler's Crusader Knight Philip Marlowe, and Williams uses the archetypal hard-boiled protagonist to good effect. Redfern is an investigator whose sole activity is exposure, who not only inquires into entrenched power structures, but engages in combat against them. The novel is uncannily accurate in its predictions, with Incitel bearing a close resemblance to Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation, as Redfern cynically observes, where better to put other people's money? and an international television satellite service. Through Redfern's investigation of this mysterious group of political activists, known only as the Volunteers, Williams's exploration of Wales takes a more ideological approach. He focuses on major centre conflicts, the tensions between striking miners and local government. He also views Wales not only as a subset of the United Kingdom, but as a region of a much larger global dominance. More significantly, 
He explores how neocolonial forces such as globalization and mass communication affect regional identity and local cultural traditions, as illustrated in the opening chapters, when, following the attempted assassination of a government minister at St. Fagan's Folk Museum in Cardiff, Redfern is sent to investigate. As he wanders around the museum, he observes, What this place offered, after all, was a version of the life of a people, a version, characteristically, that attracted official visits, and then what had poured into it roughly and incongruously with this lingering shock of surprise was another version, another practice, of the life of the same people. What this shows us is that what claims to be the history, stories and cultural variations of a given region is, in fact, a conditioned response, a regional narrative that is reshaped by, conforms to, and is decontextualized by the dominant narratives that are pervade. Williams goes on to explore this further, illustrating how these romanticized snapshots also obscure a region's cultural and historical diversity. But, first, this is an active history only of rural Wales, of farms and cottages, and of the early industries of tanning and weaving. All the later history of the majority of Welsh people is simply not seen. The mining townships, the quarryman's village, the iron and steelwork settlements. The idea that the museum embodies is of an old Wales, still in part surviving, but with all the modern realities left outside in the car park. That is why it is called a folk museum, folk is the past, an alternative to people. Such representations of a given place also contribute to the creation of place myth. Many places particularly those centred on tourism, adopt and encourage many of the fictional, romanticised notions of them. Not only can this propagate common misconceptions of regional and national identity, but it can also be instrumental in defining which social and cultural attributes are required for us to feel either in or out of place. These images evoke perceptions and images of Wales that are reminiscent of both Richard Llewellyn's How Green Was My Valley and more significantly, Emlyn Williams's The Corn is Green. It is a place myth, which, through a combination of memory, attachments and stories, allow us to create our own place myths, which serve to perpetuate both a collective and an individual sense of place. However, through the volunteers, Williams also explores notions of displacement through ideological border spaces. What I mean by this, like his region, Redfern is stranded between the cultural and political affiliations of his past and the disconnected cynicism of his present situation. Through Redfern's investigation of and final reckoning with former Labour Minister and leader of the Volunteers, Mark Evans, Redfern's political allegiances are questioned. They are revalued, resulting in him crossing back over the border into political activism and, ironically, becoming a volunteer, subsequently forcing him to find his own way back. Another Cardiff-based novel, which explores centre-margin conflicts, although focusing more on Cardiff and its burgeoning disconnection with the Welsh hinterland beyond it, is Duncan Bush's psychological noir thriller, Glass Shot. Set in 1984, against the backdrop of the miners' strike, Glass Shot is narrated by its main protagonist, 
36-year-old Stu Boyle, a Cardiff-based garage mechanic of Maltese Irish descent. Recently separated from his wife and children, Boyle now lives alone. Known locally as Yank, American movie-obsessed Boyle dresses like a cowboy and drives a 1957 Thunderbird, cruising around the capital and its periphery, where, as Tony Bianchi suggests, empty space and its open possibilities are always present at the borders of the known. Places and interior spaces, in the form of bedrooms, living rooms, the city's alleyways and streets, rural villages and the Brecon beacons beyond, are a significant theme throughout the novel. Bush uses them to map out his region of Wales and to explore an alternative sense of place. It's a sense of place that reflects a gap between the dominant ideological and aesthetic interests and the interests in the stories of persons who reside in the local. Bush also explores themes of displacement, as illustrated when Boyle drives to the Brecon Beacons to spy on his ex-wife, travelling to a place that is beyond the centre, still part of Wales but separated by distance. One more dirty-looking Welsh played-out little village. Don't even ask me to pronounce the name of it. Just another place that grew up around a hole in the ground, 20 miles from nowhere. Interestingly, when Boyle eventually travels beyond the village and into the hills and the valley beyond, he imagines it as another place, liking it to Montana and Wyoming. It is like a background you'd see in a film, or some Shangri-La, another mountain land painted on glass. Such themes are reflective of the novel's title, Glass Shot, a shot obtained through a glass plate on which part of the scene has been painted. The painting on the glass is photographed along with the action seen through the clear portion of the glass, providing the illusion of a complete setting. This special effect can be used to simulate elaborate locations without the need to construct expensive sets. This blending of fantasy and reality works on multiple levels. Firstly, Glass Shot is a noir thriller, narrated by a psychologically deranged Stu Boyle. Through intermittent flashbacks, we learn of Boyle's violent history, and that some of the sexual conquests he lists in his scrapbook are, in fact, his victims. What makes this even more unsettling is how Boyle tries to paint another picture. He justifies his actions, convincing himself that its victims were willing and grateful participants. Boyle's disillusionment and his reimagining of social and geographical landscapes works well. It works on a regional level too. Cardiff, like Boyle, focuses in on itself and tries to reimagine itself in relation to a more globalised culture. This positions the region beyond the periphery of the centre into what Jeanette Lees describes as a paradoxical border space. The paradox being that as the social and cultural gaps grow wider, the centre identifies even more with a globalised mass culture, which, in Boyle's case, is American television and films. Boyle's blurring of fantasy and reality can also be read in reference to the decontextualising of regional narratives. Like the exhibition in St. Fagan's Museum, Boyle's reimagining of people and places is only a snapshot. As Tony Bianchi observes, Boyle sees each of the protagonists as thinking each other. The police, putting together a picture of Boyle, 
and Boyle building a dossier on his victims. The results of this, in reference to both Boyle's delusions and the censor's perception of what lies beyond its geographical borders, is that there is never a stable, unitary knowledge of reality, never the whole picture. We look beyond the centre now and travel west as we explore Niall Griffiths' crime thriller Stump. Like many of Griffiths' novels, Stump uses its main protagonist to explore the contrast between urban, rural, cultural and geographical landscapes. There is a distinct reference to geographical boundaries. Cultural differences are explored through dialect, accent and the demotic voice. In Stump, Griffiths explores the Dovey Valley in West Wales, its surrounding forests and villages, and the town of Aberystwyth. Griffiths shows how the environment can influence regional consciousness, and how each character reacts to, and to some degree, is shaped by these settings. However, what is more interesting is that he is less concerned with how these environments affect the local inhabitants but focuses more on the effect they have on the outsiders travelling through them. These outsiders are presented through a combination of first and third person narratives, through a mix of present tense and flashbacks. Griffiths interweaves the story of its main protagonist, a Liverpudlian one-armed recovering drug addict who now lives in Aberystwyth, with the story of Darren and Ali, two small-time Liverpudlian criminals who have been sent to find him. Like the novels The Volunteers and Glass Shot, Stump uses crime fiction and the unfolding of its mystery as a means of providing a regional map. As Ali and Darren travel from Liverpool to Aberystwyth, Griffiths explores the variations and, to some degree, histories of the North East and West Wales regions. They leave behind the wide escarpment of council houses, uniformly red brick, driving towards the border, where the air is filled by the sulphurous stink from shot and steelworks, rising above the flat wide bog on their left, chimneys and towers charred and blackened between marsh and mudflats. They drive into Chester, through the ancient gate, through the ancient walls, grand arch of the conqueror, once sprouting heads severed and staked, of the conspirative and seditious, or just merely the Celt. They keep driving, turning onto a bridge across the River Dee, and as they enter northeast Wales, Chester gets smaller behind them, Wrexham gets bigger in front. As Ali and Darren travel further west, the landscape becomes less familiar, the earth swelling, beginning to bulge, into mounds and hills, then higher still into mountains, dark shadows streaking across them as the weak sun is gulped by cloud and ancient earthworks. It is here that Griffiths' exploration of regional determinism is more explicit. For Darren, this is an unforgiving landscape. The wide open spaces accentuate his sense of detachment. He feels vulnerable. He has less control when compared to the autonomy he feels on the urban Liverpudlian streets. Again, the crisis situation here is one of identity. This is a land that Darren distrusts. A place with this many mountains and lakes and woods is just not right. This is a land with witches and all sorts. The creepiest place. And the sooner we're out the place, the better. This alien landscape heightens Darren's sense of inadequacy. He grows more agitated. 
His predilection towards violence proliferates as the landscape encourages his darker impulses. Whereas the antithesis to Darren's response is illustrated through his long-suffering sidekick, Ali. For Ali, the landscape awakens a regional consciousness that, for the majority of his life, has been subdued by a more strident, urbanised regional voice. We learn that Ali, as a boy, spent holidays in the valley visiting his Welsh grandparents. The land has a more liberating effect on him, as opposed to the limiting effect it has on Darren. Ali's regional affiliations, albeit briefly, are renewed. As Ali pictures himself as a boy, reeling in a fish with his grandfather, he too is drawn closer to the land. This is a regional consciousness reawakened by nostalgia. The landscape, coupled with an expression of longing, enables Ali to catch sight of those distinct and forgotten places, which, like the fish's face he recalls most clearly twenty years later, still scanned in his dreams. Griffiths explores the more lasting effects of renewed regional consciousness through the observations and internal dialogue of Stump's one-armed protagonist. As the one-armed stranger hides out in rural Aberystwyth, he spends each morning reflecting on the surrounding countryside and, more specifically, a one-eyed fox. Here, Griffiths blurs the boundaries between landscape and nature. The fox like the region, has a profound effect on the narrator. His awareness of the landscape is heightened. It is as though the region's presence, like the fox's blade-sharp musk, is starting to get under his skin. What is also of interest here is the reference to the narrator's stump. Even though he is deeply affected by the physical environment and climate, his stump still aches and throbs. It is as though the stump of his amputated arm is still a remnant of his illicit past and the urbanised region from which he is broken away from. And finally, my own crime novel, Border Sands. Set in 1983, in a small town along the borderlands of northeast Wales, the novel centres around its main protagonist, investigative reporter Mabon Price, referred to as Mab throughout. Mab recently returns to his hometown to attend the funeral of murdered local beauty, Mary Reese. The murder has hit the small town hard, overshadowing the recent and much-needed industrial investments throughout the community. Mab becomes entangled in the events surrounding Mary's death. He's reluctant at first. A local lad, Davy Evans, has already been charged and, on the surface, it appears to be an open and shut case. Yet, Davy's father begs Mab to help, and as an act of kindness, more than belief, Mab agrees to make a phone call. He calls in a favour from his ex-boss and local newspaper chief editor, Herb Colburn. Even though he has not heard from Mab for years, Herb agrees to help, inviting Mab to accompany a junior journalist to the North Wales Police Headquarters for a police interview, Mab agrees. But once the interview is finished, to his surprise, he comes away with more questions than answers. Mab looks deeper into Mary's death, who begins to weave through a maze of deception, where each clue brings him closer to what really happened. 
and exposes the town's, Mary's, and his own veiled history. The truth, he discovers, is a complex tapestry of loyalty, betrayal, and the complex family ties that bind us. As well as being a compelling crime novel, one of Border Sands' main themes is its exploration of geographical, social, and moral borders, and how we're affected by them. Growing up in the northeast corner of Wales, borders have played a significant part in my understanding of place. Most of northeast Wales lies on the border between England and Wales. Neither fish nor fowl, it's an in-between place. Arguably, this could apply to most borderlands and cross-border territories, each a curious amalgam of social and cultural landscapes. With easy access to Chester, Liverpool and Manchester, North East Wales is, understandably, the most densely populated area of North Wales. It has a population in excess of 300,000, living in the areas around Wrexham and Deeside. Today, it comprises three counties, Wrexham, Denbyshire and Flintshire. One of the more visible elements of the border between England and North East Wales is the Deestry. Extending from the salt marshes of the River Dee in Saltney, the estuary runs along Bagles, Hollywell, Greenfield and Mostyn, providing a clear divide between the Flintshire Lowlands and the Wirral Peninsula. The Dee estuary is one of the main geographical borders featured in border sense, and since early childhood has been a great influence on Mab, not only in regards to the town's cultural and regional identity, but on his personal understanding of place and his coming to terms with the towns, and more importantly, his own history and the recent tragedies. As shown in the following excerpt, the estuary had always been a place of secrets, where things got lost and no amount of searching could find them. Barely five miles wide, it formed the boundary between the Wirral Peninsula and the North East Wales coast. A beautiful, oakly expanse of salt marsh and mudflats, where hidden channels and creeks snaked beneath low waters, and, this morning, gatherings of birds feasted along the shore. The small town in Border Sands is based on my hometown of Hollywell, but also includes the neighbouring Greenfield Valley, the Dee Estuary and the surrounding area. The town of Hollywell, Trefunon, and the Greenfield Valley, Dovrin Mice Glass, have played a pivotal role in defining the Flintshire Lowlands' sense of place and influencing perceived notions of its cultural identity. Hollywell started to grow as a town from around 660 AD, taking its name from the Holy Well of St. Winifred. The town became a significant place of pilgrimage long before the Norman invasion. Throughout its history, it has seen a steady flow of visitors and migrant workers from both England and Wales. Most of these workers were drawn to the Greenfield Valley, especially during its industrial prosperity in the mid-late 18th century. Just under two miles long, the Greenfield Valley was formed during the Ice Age, originally forested with oak, hazel and ash. In the centuries that followed, it underwent mass deforestation. As Mab investigates Mary Reese's murder, he revisits old haunts, one being the Greenfield Valley whose history interweaves with the fringes of his own memories, as shown in the following excerpt. The afternoon sun peered accusingly through the trees, 
lighting the foxgloves that blazed among the bracken-covered banks. Mab took a deep breath. This dusty, leather-scented air was unrelenting. He hadn't been here for years, and it conjured up images of long walks with his mother, and those pictures in her old books. For some reason, he thought about all those who had taken this trail long before him, the world-weary mill workers, greedy industrialists, and those first Cistercian monks. History ran through the streams. It lurked beneath the pools, casting its reflection in pop alley bottles, and leaving its footprint in the ruins of the old factories. As well as geographical, Border Sands explores moral borders too. The obvious one being what it takes for someone to cross that line of no return and commit the brutal murder of Mary Reese. But it also explores the moral borders that exist among families. And when a loving mother, a devoted father or brother are asked to cross them, where do they venture? Do they cross the fringes into betrayal? Or do they remain loyal and become part of the lies, secrets, and the family ties that bind them. The answers to those questions can be found within the novel. And, if you're intrigued to read more, why not give Border Sands a try? It's available as an e-book, and in print, at all the usual places. Next time, I'll be celebrating the approaching Yuletide, with a two-part special edition inspired by the tradition of telling ghost stories in the cold, dark December month. In part one, I'll explore the key elements of what makes an M.R. James ghost story, and I'll discuss some recent stories by other writers who pay homage to the Jamesian tale. In part two, I'll be reading one of my own stories to pay homage to the season's tradition of the telling of uncanny and supernatural tales. So, until then, take care and stay safe. The Bird's Eye View of Books podcast was written and presented by me, Math Bird, and is a McSnowell Books production.